Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Misinformation, disinformation, and fake news abound, and it's increasingly difficult to know what's true. Our media environment has become hyper-partisan. Science is conducted by press release. Jevin West is an associate professor at the University of Washington. He directs the Center for an Informed Public, whose mission is to resist strategic misinformation, promote an informed society, and strengthen democratic discourse. And he's co-author with Carl Bergstrom of Calling BS, a book on how to spot and refute misinformation. And he joins us uh, for the hour. Jevin West, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. It's great to talk to you. We want to note uh, we're we're sitting here in Logan, I am anyway, and uh, you are a a USU alum. I absolutely am, and I was just going to say, Tom, I wish this interview was in person, because that would mean I would be in Cache Valley in Logan. I absolutely miss the place, and I I look forward to the times when I get to go visit every, about, about every other year. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, well, you're doing some important work there, Center for Informed Public. Uh, I want to, uh, at the beginning here, give a shout-out to Marianne Buffaletto and her article in uh, USU College of Sciences Discovery Magazine. That's where I want to start, talking about uh, vaccinations. Um, so you've followed this, of course, uh, closely, and this uh, part of this at least has to do with science and information, misinformation. Um, but, but I guess the place to start here is... Uh, anti-vaccine uh, sentiment, uh, you say in this article, is nothing new, uh, but we are seeing uneasiness among people who generally support widespread inoculation. Uh, so we'll get to misinformation, which I think is part of this, but there are some other reasons why people are vaccine-hesitant. That's right. Actually, um, this is something that would occur for anything that affects people's personal health, and, and certainly during a crisis event, like, crisis, crisis event like a like the pandemic we're in, there's all sorts of uncertainty. And people are, should and, and do care about their health and the health of their families and their neighbors and their friends. And um, the world in which we live now online uh, makes it easy for good information to travel, but also bad information to travel. And so there, we're contending all the time with different uh, information as information consumers. And so people, you know, they're running into these uh, these articles, some of them true and vetted and, and, and some aren't. But it's confusing, even for the experts, even for, you know, scientists that study this full time, where they have to sift through massive amounts of information. But that set aside, like you said, if you just set the misinformation issue aside, you still have people that have um, convictions around certain beliefs uh, when it comes to their health or, or even things outside their health. Um, and, and there are two different kinds of uh, situations that we deal with in the center. We deal with situations where um, people um, maybe believe something because of a mistake, uh, maybe some uh, article they read that's just not true that gets refuted, and if they known that it's wrong, they would change their position. But then there's groups of individuals that are truly convicted. Uh, con- they're convicted in their beliefs of, let's say, vaccinations not working, even though uh, there's a preponderance of evidence that they do. So it makes our job challenging because we're dealing both with conviction and mistakes. So uh, you've uh, launched into that uh, a little bit right there, but uh, maybe define misinformation uh, versus disinformation. Absolutely. It's a really important term that I think not only researchers and academics that do this full time need to be aware of, but, but also the public, at least um, how we talk about it uh, uh, in the research world. When we talk about misinformation, it's any kind of uh, false information. And a lot of times it's by mistake, but not only by mistake. Disinformation is different in that it's intentional uh, false information that's, that's meant to deceive uh, or confuse. Uh, there's a lot of times political motivation or propaganda motivation or financial motivation behind disinformation. And the big difference between the two is that misinformation a lot of times is it could be an individual news article that's wrong that can be investigated further and refuted if necessary, whereas disinformation tends to come in a collection of articles. Some of them might be true, some of them not. So when we we try to identify a disinformation campaign, it's not so easy. It's not just fact-checking an article. It involves larger-scale narratives and and multi-platform, multi-stakeholder kinds of um, investigations. And so it's a lot more challenging. But the big difference is really just in the intentionality of the two. 
And I think we are seeing both surrounding vaccinations, are we not? Absolutely. We are seeing both. I would say the vast majority of the, at least uh, my own personal opinion, studying this both as a researcher and also just as a general consumer of information online, um, I would say that the vast majority of it uh, can be uh, conversations that are, are mistaken. I'll give you an example. There was recently a, a statement by a UK uh, government official not too long ago, just a, I think even just you know a couple of weeks ago, stating that 60% of the people in the hospitals were uh, from vaccinated individuals. He meant to say 60% of the unvaccinated people in the hospital uh, are, are the people being treated um, in these um, health centers. And so, but the, but the original mistaken claim went viral. There were uh, major political personalities like Candace Owen and others who, who had spread this particular um, rumor. And, and to her credit, she did correct it um, and others corrected it. But if you look at the data, which we do on a daily basis, we live and breathe this kind of data because we collect it all the time so we can try to understand these trends. The, the initial viral piece of misinformation always travels further than the, than, the, than the correction. Sometimes the correction will be then liked and retweeted as well, but never goes as far. So, yes, we see mistakes like that and lots of them. Um, but there are true disinformation campaigns out there. And we see, we've seen those from bad state actors. We've seen there's plenty of investigations, not just with our group, but others that have shown, for example, um, uh, what appears to be uh, Russian accounts pushing um, conversations in these anti-vaccination groups online and really sort of fueling the fire and, and putting out claims and articles that simply aren't true. And it's not just, you know, Russia. There's other uh, groups that are sort of pushing that kind of information online. And then again, there are those individuals that truly believe that are that are believe that vaccinations, uh, you know, are putting chips in our body to track us, et cetera, all, and all the other conspiracies associated with it. One of the uh, one of the things I think you study um, that's mentioned on the center's website. Um, what makes people share misinformation, even when they know it's untrue? Um, and that's something you, I think, studying talk about. That, that's an important factor, isn't it? it? It is an important factor, and part of it, Tom, is that we're humans. We're uh, we we have uh, great cognitive ability, and we also have great cognitive crutches. Some of those being, you know, confirmation bias, for example. We tend to read and look for and share um, articles that subscribe to our narrative of the world, um, even if those articles are wrong. Uh, we tend to not maybe um, fact-check them as well or source them as well. And sometimes even if we know they're not true, we might even share them partly uh, because we, maybe we want others to vet them or because of the, you know, craziness of the, of the title or, of the article or, or the subject of the title. But also there's, there's you know, some ideas that have been put out there that um, talk about uh, how we share articles just as a signal of our tribe, too, even if we know they're not true. So sometimes even the more preposterous uh, articles uh, will sort of convey even more that we're part of the tribe. Um, so, you know, if you know, there's a there's a whole bunch of there's a whole suite of reasons why we as humans would share things we even know that are false, and that's why we're starting to partner more with cognitive psychologists. In fact, we just hired literally this week on Monday a postdoctoral scholar, um, Maddie Jalbrett from um, USC, who spent her entire PhD dissertation thinking about these kinds of issues. And so we're really trying to develop more of an understanding from a cognitive element. And that, that will hopefully be in collaboration with many of the researchers around the country that are doing work in this area, thinking about interventions, given these constraints that we have as humans. But I would say one of the main one that we see um, for why people share, um, even if the information is false or even possibly false from the view of that individual, is that we just have these, these directional biases. And these biases, everyone has them, by the way, even, even the researchers themselves. And so we have to sort of contend with that. And I think a little bit of self-reflection is always helpful. And we do those kinds of exercises when we talk to the public and students about these issues. I want to note here at the beginning of the conversation, hopefully we'll get to some of these in specifics as we go along. We started out talking about vaccinations and COVID, etc. But information, disinformation uh, also has an effect uh, with regard to democracy. That's part of your mission statement, right? Uh, uh, you know, January 6th was a result of 
I think you could say, you know, misinformation, disinformation, um, you know, climate science, uh, the, the list goes on and on. I want to quote uh, your colleague, Carl Bergstrom, your co-author. Uh, here's Carl Bergstrom. Social media in particular, as well as a broader range of Internet technologies, including algorithmically driven search and click-based advertising, have changed the way people get inf- information and form opinions about the world. And they seem to have done so in a manner that makes people particularly vulnerable to the spread of misinformation and disinformation. So, as, as you write in the book, BS has always been with us, right? But, but is there... Is there a way in which, with with today's technologies, that we are more vulnerable? I absolutely think so, and and I I I don't know that we're necessarily as individuals more vulnerable, but the algorithms that decide what we see every day, because uh, there is a there is a, a selection event that has to occur, um, because there's infinite information and things that land in your Facebook posts or in your news feed on Twitter or even in, in, on the, the, your news feed and any service really online that you use, there were algorithmic decisions that were made. And so we become, uh, you know, we're, we're susceptible already. And the algorithms themselves are sorting things just to grab our attention. And many times those attention grabbers aren't always the most uh, integrous uh, pieces of information. And actually, it's something that I teach in another class. I, I of course, teach classes on on misinformation and disinformation and ways to become better consumers of information. But I also teach classes in data science and machine learning, and I teach students how algorithms are, are, are recommender systems and search engines are developed so that they do solve certain kinds of objectives. And one of the biggest objectives that most of these uh, recommender systems are trying to solve is to, is to simply keep you attached to the program. And they're really good at it. They are really good at it. Uh, if you can run billions of uh, experiments all day long, you start to know more about, if you're the algorithm, you start to know more about human psychology than the human psychologists themselves. And so we're contending with an information system uh, that has very smart and uh, 24-hour working algorithms trying to keep our eyeballs stuck to the platform. And so if it if it can do that well, then our susceptibilities really become revealed. Um, because who isn't going to click on that, you know, cat video or you know, a you know headline that says, you know, you know, UFOs have arrived today. I mean, those even aren't aren't even good examples because there's more subtle ones that'll attract our attention. The point is, technology today um, is 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 sort of adding uh, to the problem because it's just trying to pull us into that platform. And you note that uh, because of this, because of the algorithm, what they're trying to do is, uh, uh, you know, trying to draw us back in continually, right? So inf- the information environment is addictive, and that's a, that's a change, I think, and a problem, especially if there's misinformation out there, right? Oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, there's few addictions that are likely as strong as that. I mean, there's, certainly there's addictions um, in the online world and the offline world, for sure, that we're always having to contend with in society. But I would say the addiction of uh, the the platform of our you know online environment is so strong. You see this everywhere you go, whether it's at the bus stop or whether it's at a you know neighborhood event. Everyone is on their phones, um, and I think when you have that amount of time on the phones, and there's constant. Uh, experiments, as I mentioned, seeing which words and phrases and which imagery sort of pulls you in and keeps you on that platform. There's this urge, this pull for us to always, you know, sort of look, uh, you know, what's the newest information or what, you know, whether you're on social media as a teenager or whether you're on social media as an adult, um, there's always things pulling us, pulling us in and constantly um, finding ways uh, even col- like even a color scheme or something might be more attractive to us, and, and it'll it'll keep us attracted. And it's not that the platforms want to send us misinformation, or mis or bad information, or good information. It doesn't care about what it's showing you. It just wants you to be on that platform. And a lot of times, it's the misinformation. It's the sensational headlines. It's the it's the out of the ordinary statement. It's the sort of I found a solution uh, to uh, the the pandemic, or I have a solution for your health kinds of uh, headlines that can pull us in. And so, yeah, we're contending with that all the time. Now, I assume we're all vulnerable, right? We'd, each of us maybe maybe think I'm not, but I, I assume we all are, right? I'm curious about interaction with your students. 
um, you present these classes. What do they generally think coming in? That you know, I'm I, I'm ahead of the curve. I know I can spot BS, or or do they come in thinking, oh, I need some help with this? That's a good question. You know, I, I think it, it, we see all sorts of students coming. I will say just as as a first comment to that question, I'm vulnerable, and I live and breathe this every day, both from a research perspective. Um, and from a teaching perspective, and I'm vulnerable. I have plenty of examples where I was susceptible to misinformation, that I spread things I, uh, that w- turned out to be wrong, that I write things that are sometimes wrong. In fact, my favorite day in the classroom is when a student calls, calls BS on me. <laughs> it's, it's my, you know, it, I get real joy in that because I want us as a society to be able to do that in a civically-minded way with empathy and and as a, as a way to make us all smarter, not as a way to feel smarter individually in, in, in calling it out, but to make us all smarter. So when students come in, you know, there are the students that are quite confident um, in their ability. And I think where students do have some legitimate confidence is, you know, they're digital natives and they understand the digital system and, and the way it works more so than maybe the older generation, including me. Um, but I will say that they aren't, uh, you know, any better at critical thinking and, and data reasoning and all the kinds of things that we want to teach on a campus than someone that's, you know, that's retired as a you know, retired engineer from Utah State University. I mean, there's there are, you know, there are all sorts of different skill sets that we come into our class. We have over 40 different majors that take our class and it's it fills up right away at registration. And I think students, of course, are attracted to the idea that they get to have a class on calling and, and uh, spotting and, and calling BS online, because they've seen it just like everyone else. I don't think it's you know, a secret to anyone who's been online of any age that there's so much misinformation online and we're overwhelmed with it. And I think the students are excited about developing those skills. I will say that we uh, push the students enough with examples and different kinds of principles from selection bias and causation correlation, et cetera. By the end, I, I do think they have at least most of them have some form of humility um, when, when uh, you know, trying to develop these skills to become better information consumers. And our, our goal is to encourage them to feel more confident. In fact, the book that we wrote was really an empowerment book. It's meant to give people um, sort of that feeling of confidence when they come across misinformation, especially the kind that comes in data and stats and graphs and technology. That's sort of my area of expertise and Carl's area of expertise. And if they can feel confident... Uh, because we don't want people to not trust anything uh, out there. We, that, raising a, you know, a generation of, of, of cynics would be exactly the opposite of what we want to do. We want to say the institutions in which we rely on in, dem- in a democracy, like science and, and other things, and journalism, um, are, are things that, yeah, they're institutions that have mistakes come from them, but, but they still, all in all, do a pretty good job. Um, and so, yeah, that's, the goal is, if they are a little overconfident, Give them some humility, but in the end, be confident that they can be just stronger and stronger information consumers by creating these habits of mind. I want to pick up on what you just said after a break. Um, this, I was thinking about that. I want to bring that up after the break. Um, you know, the kind of the fake news side, some people would have you say, well, there's no truth out there except what I'm telling you, right? The, that uh, kind of uh, playing on cynicism. Um, versus, uh, you have a, a chapter on the nature of science. You talk about the vulnerability of, of science. I want to juxtapose those two things. But before we go to break, I want to, uh, throughout the hour, I want to give some examples. And one, one example, uh, you know, of spotting uh, BS and spotting misinformation, uh, one example that really stood out to me, you gave a presentation, and this is on your website to the American Library Association, and you gave a, uh, we won't be able to do the visuals, maybe just describe the visuals here on the radio. This was very interesting. I had trouble spotting this until you explained it to me. Uh, this is in Georgia, and this is just not vaccinations. This is COVID cases. Um, and, it's, and it's two maps of Georgia with color coding, depending on, on how heavy the, the caseload was in certain areas. Uh, I wonder if you talk about that because because this was very clever by whoever did it. <laughs> um, and, yeah. yeah, go ahead, that, Tom. That's a great example. I'm glad you brought it up. And they're always more difficult on radio because they're visual. And and so much of the way that we communicate with data um, is through visual. So we use a lot of these examples. But the example that you're talking about 
were, were two heat maps of uh, the counties within Georgia and their case counts. And there was one on July 2nd of 2020 and one on July 17th of 2020. And it was at that time that there were very uh, uh, strong debates about whether we should open up or close the economy or wear masks or not wear masks. And these two images were taken as evidence for both sides of the argument, by the way. Um, and the public health officials put this map out. And they said, look, they're basically the same. They look basically the same if you just look visually. And if you look at them in a, you know, a tweet, that may be the only thing you see is just this visual comparison that looks very similar. The, the problem with it, uh, and problem with lots of uh, you know, heat maps and histograms that require bins and all these other things, is that the bins used for the colors were vastly different. So that was an unfair comparison to compare the July 2nd image to the July 17th image. And this happens all the time. And here's the interesting part about that story. They admitted that they made the mistake, um, and they claimed that it was due to the software they were using to um, that kind of just maximize the, the contrast uh, in the colors. And actually, I believe them. I believe them that they made an honest mistake here. And some, I would say most of the time, these are honest mistakes. Now, there are nefarious examples, too. But I think this was an honest mistake. Um, but it shows even more why we need to teach people um, about, you know, communicating through data, uh, you know, all the time, because they're the producers of this information the public's been consuming. And so it's not just consumers that need to be aware of these tricks. It, we need to be, you know, informing the producers. But that's a great example because it's an example where it can be very misleading, the visual itself. But this was an honest mistake by them. They admitted the mistake. Um, but it also demonstrates that we need to train the public more and more on how to convey data specifically as uh, accurately as we can. Well, let's take a break. Uh, by the way, as we go along here, we'll we'll get to I'll, I'll uh, try to make sure by the end of the hour we we get to uh, your last chapter talks about uh, how do you last two chapters how do you spot BS and how do you refute it. Um, so uh, we're talking with Jevin West. Uh, he is the uh, co-author with his colleague Carl Bergstrom of the book um, Calling BS, um, and he is the director of the Center for an Informed Public at the University of Washington. And uh, we'll have more following this break. Did you know that the words lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender are used very infrequently, if at all, in state social studies guidelines across the nation? The exclusion of LGBTQ individuals, issues, and social movements in social studies teaching guidelines has significant implications for students who identify as LGBTQ or other marginalized groups. Researchers in social studies education are working to create more inclusive standards to contribute to a learning atmosphere where all voices and perspectives are valued. Inclusive guidelines support curriculum and instruction that benefits students' physical, mental, and academic health. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about misinformation, disinformation, uh, fake news, uh, and uh, related topics today. Uh, we're talking with Jevin West. He's an associate professor at the University of Washington. Uh, there he directs the Center for an Informed Public, whose mission is to resist strategic misinformation, promote an informed society, and strengthen democratic discourse. And he's co-author with his colleague Carl Bergstrom of Calling BS. It's a book on how to spot and refute misinformation. Uh, so, Jevin West, we, we've talked about, we've defined mis- and disinformation. Uh, how do you find, define BS? Well, BS has a, a little bit longer definition. Um, BS is, is something that we spent a lot of time thinking about, and it's not a word that you, um, you, know, you use you know, without sort of taking it very seriously, especially if you're going to use that with students. And so when we talk about uh, BS uh, online and offline, really what we're talking about um, are, is, of course, language and rhetoric that people use. Um, but we're also talking a lot about the ways in which graphics and statistics 
and other forms of data presentation can be um, both persuasive and, and sometimes overwhelm people into thinking that, um, you know, one, one thing or another. It's really about, you know, capturing your uh, attention. And so the, the, the ways in which we use BS is really um, the same in, with data as it is in, in, in language and rhetoric. So that's essentially uh, one of the things that we, uh, when we talk about BS, is that it's really there to persuade, overwhelm, and, and doing so in a way with blatant disregard for truth. Mm. And in the book, you say we're fairly well-equipped to spot the sort of old-school BS that's faced, based in fancy rhetoric and weasel words, but most of us don't feel qualified to challenge the avalanche of new-school BS presented in the language of math, science, or statistics. Uh, th- that gets into what we were saying, uh, this this new age, and uh, even more of a problem than before. By the way, uh, you, uh, I don't know you, if you've coined this word, you use it in the book, mathiness. What do you, what do you mean there? Right. So mathiness is a great example of BS in quantitative form. Mathiness is um, essentially a way, it's kind of algebraic shock and awe. That's something Carl and I sort of use as a way to describe it, where people will use mathematical terms to seem very science-y and, and very technical, when in fact the math equations being used really don't make any technical sense. The terms aren't defined. You could write the equations in many different ways. Um, but it's, it's, it's something that's used all the time. We see it a lot, a, to- a lot of times in the, in, the, in the corporate world, in the business world. Um, and so we like to poke at that a little bit. Uh, there's one equation, for example, in the health industry that uses, I think it's called the VMC uh, uh, equation that essentially um, could, have be, could be written in just a few words about what's good that you want to have in terms of quality and efficiency and, um, and then the things that aren't as good. Um, but then there's this fancy equations with multiply, you know, multiplication and, and adding and, and, and things. So the mathiness is an example of a way to sound very, uh, 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 sound like an expert, sound very technical, but really it's, it's not saying anything um, from it other than just grabbing your attention and sort of, uh, you know, overwhelming you. We see this all the time in, in the use of data and statistics. A lot of times people will use terms, fancy terms, um, you know, we did a Bonferroni correction, and here's our p-value, and that sounds scary. And even myself, who teaches stats, sometimes I have to look up things, and, and you almost take it uh, for granted that it might be right. But in fact, you can question those things with very simple principles. And that's the goal for us, is to teach the public how to question data and statistics in the same way they might question a car salesman. Yeah, as you were saying, that given that example, I was, I was you know, chuckling. But it uh, it works, right? <laughs> if, you, if you sound if you sound works. smart and your audience doesn't understand it, absolutely, yeah, it's quite effective. And actually, BS in some ways, not all of it's bad. I mean, you know, sometimes you might you know congratulate someone on their haircut that you actually might not think is good, but you know, you're, you're going to tell them that it looks good. And there are times, you know, where it can be, you know, it, it can it can be socially advantageous to just uh, you know to maybe BS a little bit, but. But it's the it's the BS that you see, um, uh, you know, from our government and industry leaders. Uh, it's you know BS that you see online and from marketers. Of course, we've seen that from marketers all the time. But there's a new kind of BS, as you mentioned, um, and it's this rise of of data uh, uh, BS, and that's kind of one of our main focus areas in our class and in our book. We talk about all kinds of misinformation and disinformation. But it's the kind that comes wrapped in that that data example that we showed right before the we talked about right before the break, um, or it, it can come in um, it could come in a statistic that uh, sounds super fancy, or it might come in a histogram. It might come um, from uh, you know uh, someone talking about machine learning and using some technical terms, deep neural nets or something, and then you might just be intimidated and say, oh, it must be true because they're using deep neural nets. Um, so these are the things uh, that we're trying to talk about in the book, that there's BS that comes wrapped in data. And, and, and sometimes even science. I'm a huge, huge fan of science ever since. I mean, actually, in, when I was at Utah State University as an undergraduate, boy, I mean, it was, it was the science classes and the books that I'd pick up at the library there and the discussions I had. I really have fell, I fell in love with science and what it can do for society. But it has its challenges, and it's susceptible to misinformation as well. I don't want to pick on any particular political side. This example just comes to mind. But in the, uh, you know, in the controversy in the aftermath of the election, there, there were, you know, was, uh, I, I saw some 
videos and, and tweets and such where folks were using statistics uh, to say that, uh, you know, certain counties in certain states could not possibly have voted this much for Biden, for example. You know, they were supporting uh, former President Trump's uh, theory that there was massive voter fraud. I wonder if you saw any of those. And it, 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 it seemed like mathiness to me. It was it was kind of they, they were they were talking statistics. I didn't understand it. <laughs> and and so I guess the, the tendency could be, uh, well, when it sounds real smart, maybe it's true. Absolutely. It's a great example. And we did find some of those examples. So during the election and, and actually prior to the election at our center, we formed uh, what's called the Election Integrity Partnership. This was a partnership across uh, the academic institutions, so with Stanford University and with journalists and government agencies and industry, including industry and community organizations. And we worked together trying to detect in a nonpartisan way as much as we could um, across, uh, you know, looking for things that um, were um, issues of election fraud or delegitimization. And that was one of them that we saw a lot post-election, where these so-called uh, experts, the statisticians that were showing how it was statistically improbable uh, for um, the, the votes to have gone one way or the other, given the data that they had. And actually, um, my colleagues and I had responded to uh, several of those posts, and we wrote posts ourselves explaining why many of those arguments um, were, um, were, were in many ways disingenuous and actually wrong in their presentation. And I could give, you know, uh, one, uh, one specific example is this um, these these vote patterns that you would see. So the idea would be they were they were hearkening back to what's called Benford's law. And so Benford's law is this really it's a super interesting mathematical concept. It's where where um, an empirical di- distribution of leading digits they de- deviate from special some special distribution. So the idea is that if you take a whole bunch of random numbers, you're going to see a distribution of starting numbers that are like one and and twos versus eights and nines and just the way the numbers have laid out you'll expect this distribution. And they were saying, well, you didn't see that distribution. And then we explained why that wouldn't be a violation of Benford's law um, in, in some of our posts. So yes, there was lots of this mathiness discussion. It sounds intimidating, and it sounds like it must be right, and there must be some irregularities. But um, most of those arguments, at least the ones that we looked at, uh, had really serious faults in, in their uh, presentation and in their arguments. I made reference to this before the break. I want to get to this now. You you mentioned uh, you know what you don't want in your students is is cynicism, right? Um, but uh, so I want to juxtapose these two things. We have uh, you know f- fake news. We have accusations of fake news. Uh, in some quarters, I think uh, those who are, who are you know talking about this are wanting us or wanting their followers to get to cynicism. Uh, in other words. Uh, it's it's so hard to tell the truth, and and so many people are out there lying. Uh, the only um, reliable source is me, right? Uh, or or my organization, or whatever it might might be. Um, so I wonder if you talk about that. Then that's a vulnerability we have in our you know collective system. It, it, what you're talking about right now, Tom, is the thing that worries me probably the most. Um, and it's the thing that keeps me up at night. And a lot of things keep me up at night when thinking about misinformation. When you, when you see it day and night, it, it, it sort of, uh, you need a break from it sometimes. But the thing that bother, the word, it scares me the most is that, that the next generation or just society in general will lose confidence in all institutions that we rely on in, democ- in, in democracy. And we become cynical and we only rely on ourselves or our nearest neighbor. Um, either online or offline. And we think at all times that there's, you know, a global cabal, a, a, a global conspiracy of, of elites that are sort of controlling things and, and that we can't trust gatekeepers, we can't trust our doctors, we can't tr- trust public health officials, we can't trust researchers, we can't trust any of the institutions in which we have to rely because there's too much information for any one person, even within their, in the same fields. Um, and so this um, decline in trust is, is pretty evident, um, and we need to address it. In fact, we hired another postdoctoral researcher, her name is Rachel Moran, uh, who's, who's thought a lot about trust and spent her career thinking about trust and trust in media. And she's uh, writing a book about this right now, and I've had so many great conversations with her understanding, you know, w- you know what it is about trust in these institutions, what's eroding. If you look at a lot of these 
polls that have been going on for decades that look at trust in institutions like the military, government more broadly, journalism, science, et cetera, et cetera, um, they're pretty much all declining um, in, in many degrees. I mean, science has made a, maintained a pretty high level, but even that's dropping with certain areas of society. And so if, if we don't address this issue of trust and we don't, um, you know, get back to, a, a, you know, a place where we do trust our experts, we know experts can make mistakes, sure. But one of the big goals of these disinformation campaigns is simply to erode trust. They don't even, the disinformation campaigns don't even care what content's pushed. They just want to erode trust. One of the big results that came out of one of my colleagues' research several years ago, Kate Starbird, she was studying different um, movements online, um, the sort of Blue Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter, et cetera, all these different social movements online. And what she found after she had done her research and after Twitter had released um, some of these accounts that they knew were Russian um, operatives, they, what, they, what she found is that they existed almost equally on both sides of an issue, and they were just agitating and adding noise to the system and fueling the fire and causing, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know even uh, bigger chasms between these, uh, these groups. And it was that distrust and that, um, you know, just erosion of, of, of trust of, of anything out there, especially of the other side, um, that, that made it, you know, that really caused a lot of the problems. So the main point here is that we have to address the cynicism that's growing and this distrust that society has for these information sources and gatekeepers and experts. Do In these conversations, do we, do we have uh, any glimmers of pathway forward uh, to success? Uh, how can we uh, increase uh, trust? Well, I, I, I think it's one of the most important things we, we can do, and it's things like this. It's having conversations with our local communities, it's being able to create environments where we can disagree on things, but that we at least agree on sort of the epistemological rules or the, the rules of, uh, you know, knowing how, how, what, how we know what we know. Uh, so establishing, um, you know, at least some of the, the basic elements of, of what's true from empirical data and what can be trusted as, as, as facts. I think, you know, I think, you know, talking with the public um, uh, you know, on both sides of a political issue, and also just even avoiding political issues when talking about these things and trying to establish these rules as, uh, of, uh, of, of sort of fact and, and argumentation. So one of the things that we're doing is we're reaching out with two community organizations from both sides of the political aisle. We're, we're, we form, we're um, forming an advisory board, for example, that has representatives from both sides of the political aisle. We, we reach out to librarians and high school teachers. We reach out to community um, uh, civic, or, uh, civic organizations and community organizations that are, that are engaging uh, with the public often, like the ARP and, and other organizations that are doing good community work. We, we work with journalists, and, and we talk to the public about, you know, the ways that honest journalists can make mistakes, and scientists and researchers can make mistakes, but, but, but here are some of the skills to look for when um, looking for, you know, and sourcing those who are at least more reliable than others. I, I really think this issue of trust is going to require conversations offline as much as online. I would love to see more in-person conversations and, and you know, people being a little bit more empathetic um, and, and, not, and, and getting away from the troll kinds of conversations that you see online. There's a whole bunch of things we can do, and I guess that will be one of the big challenges uh, of our time right uh, today. And, and, and I mean time being the next generation to figure out how to build that trust. So we've been talking about cynicism and trust, um, and I want to uh, make a transition here to kind of juxtaposing uh, maybe some people put too much trust in science, you know, on the other side. Um, or, or I think in your chapter, The Nature of Science, you're arguing for us to understand the scientific method better, right? I just want to quote you here. Uh, you, you talk about, uh, you know, what a what a miracle science is and all the advances that we've uh, achieved collectively through science and the scientific method. Uh, that you go on to say, for all that it does, however, it would be a mistake to conclude that science as practiced today provides an unerring conduit to the heart of ultimate reality. What are you saying there? I, I'm so glad you provided that quote. It's the first time someone's used that quote, and it was something we, uh, Carl and I took a long, long time putting together because we wanted to be very careful in how we said that. Because, again, 
you know, despite some of its issues in, in its communication and its incentive structures and its funding structures, um, it still works really well and it does amazing things. But there are things that we should address. I mean, I'll give you some examples of things we have to address. There's something called the reproducibility crisis in science, and it's been a conversation in science and outside science for over t- 10 years now, or and actually even more than that, where there are major finding in science, findings in some areas of science that we haven't been able to replicate. Now, it doesn't mean that they're broken. It, it just means that we may be, uh, you know, for example, publishing results that are only positive results statistically, and that may be giving us um, a kind of a bias in, in the literature. Um, but we can address that, and there are, that's being addressed right now with what's called pre-registration. We need to address the rise of what's called predatory publishers. And if anyone out in the public is listening, how can I be a better consumer of science information? It's trying to uh, learn how to identify at least the more well-vetted and higher-tier journals that still make mistakes, but are, are, are journals that to, to be um, a little bit more trusting of. There's this, what's the, these predatory pu- publishers are publishers that essentially look like science journals but don't have the peer review or the quality of editors, et cetera, et cetera, doing really good vetting of the science material that's being published. And people are citing these things that are just, they're, they're, they're invalid. There's also, uh, you know, a need to address, you know, the rise of retractions and, and some fraud. But it's not fraud that's really the issue. Fraud is very, very rare in science, at least that I've seen over the many years studying this. It tends to be things... Um, more often, uh, that like this issue of, uh, you know, selection bias of uh, articles that are, you know, being published more. But also, um, there, you know, with science, what we, we need to be always recognizing um, is that there, it's run by humans, and humans make mistakes. Humans, uh, you know, respond to incentives, and there's some kind of perverse incentives in science to, like, publish, 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 or perish, you know, or, and, and to always go after the funding instead of thinking about the scientific. Those are some things that we can change. And like you said, Tom, one of the most important things we can do is talk more to the public about what science can do and what it can't do. It's constraints. Uh, there are constraints of science, um, but there are some great uh, tools that we've used within science for a long time, the scientific method, that we just need to communicate better to the public. So when we get into a pandemic like we're in today, there, the public is better uh, prepared to be able to identify science that's a little bit more reliable than others. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Jevin West. He is uh, the director of the Center for Informed Public at the University of Washington and author with Carl Bergstrom of Calling BS. It's a book on how to spot and refute misinformation. Let's take another break. When we come back, we'll have about uh, five or six minutes, and I want to spend that last uh, short segment on uh, some tips. You have these in the book on spotting BS and refuting BS. Let me just go through a few of those when we come back. Take a walk, notice something green and growing, and ask yourself, what would change if you thought of it as a person? Human people are only one kind of person. There are maple people, and there are oriole people, and there are cloud people. And that changes everything. The personhood of plants. Next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge. Sunday mornings from 9 to 11 on UPR. When Jennifer's daughter got in trouble at school, the punishment was surprisingly harsh. Kids need help, and all they're doing is putting them in the system and saying, here, you're going to be away from your family for nine months to a year. And once her daughter was in Wyoming's juvenile justice system, she couldn't get out. She told me, she said, I hate this, and I hate that I can't just be a normal kid. On the next Reveal. Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with Jevin West. He's an associate professor at the University of Washington. He directs the Center for an Informed Public there. Their mission is to resist strategic misinformation, promote an informed society, and strengthen democratic discourse. And he's co-author with his colleague Carl Bergstrom of Calling BS, a book on how to spot and refute uh, misinformation. Uh, so we just have about uh, five minutes left. Um, and so maybe just quickly some highlights. Uh, first of all, uh, Jevin West, how to uh, spot BS? What what are you know two or three of the the top things you would suggest? Well, there's so many things, but some of these 
principles that we talk about in class are things that we've been taught about for since probably since we were kids. And that's, you know, one of them is if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So during the pandemic, if, if you run into a Facebook post and someone says, I have the cure for COVID, well, it might be true, but extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And usually I would say if it sounds too good to be true or too bad to be true, it probably is. Another piece of advice that I use for myself all the time is just question the source online. Question who's telling me this, what do they have to gain from it, and, and, you know, and how do they know what they're talking about? I think that just asking those questions, like a journalist would, like yourself, Tom, would be uh, you know, one of the things that we can teach all of the public. Also look out for unfair comparisons. They happen all the time. I mean, the example you used earlier in the show from the uh, Georgia State Department of Health, again, I think it was accident, but that was an unfair comparison, and unfair comparisons happen all the time. So I'd look out for those things uh, as terms of some of the, the main things. And I also say, you know, uh, consider multiple hypotheses. When you're given uh, uh, an observation or a question and someone's got the answer, consider different uh, hypotheses, and that will help us avoid some of the confirmation bias that we all have. Uh, when we read information online. And there's a whole bunch of other tips, but those are the ones that I use quite often. And then uh, just two or three minutes here, um, the, the last uh, chapter, very important, how do, how do you refute uh, BS? Uh, by the way, the one that really stood out to me is be charitable. One of the sub points is you might be wrong, right? You think you're right, but you might be wrong. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up. In fact, we could have, uh, you know, the book isn't, Spotting BS, it's 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 calling it, and that's a that can be very scary for people that uh, don't want to do that. It can also be something people are doing, or maybe too much, because we all make mistakes. As I mentioned earlier, I love it when students call out things that I've said that are wrong. We all make mistakes, so we need to be charitable. In fact, one of the principles that I always uh, talk to the students about is something called hands lawns razor. And this, uh, this is a, a great statement that just says, um, instead of, uh, you know, assuming malice, assume, inco- assume incompetence. Um, and even better than insu- assuming incompetence, just assume honest mistake. So those are the things to keep in mind. But some of the things that we, we talk about, you know, when it comes to data are a little more technical. Uh, you have to kind of get into about deploying null models and using, um, you know, redrawing figures. And, and one of my favorite is something called reductio ad absurdum. You come up with examples that, that use the same uh, arguments uh, to show, uh, you know, why the, uh, the statement is false. But some of the things that we can do, um, at least online, is make sure when we're calling out something, be charitable, but be correct. Take, you know, take that extra step and be clear about um, why your examples are wrong. Don't double down. It seems like it's the uh, sort of the, the philosophy of the Internet since the you know, early 2000s to just keep doubling down and tripling down on falsehoods. If you make a mistake, and everyone does, just admit the mistake and move on. Make sure that you're pertinent with your arguments. Um, we, you know, we provide all sorts of different ideas on, on how to be uh, pertinent and make sure that you're you know, not falling prey to some of the logical fallacies that we talk about in the spotting of BS. But I think, honestly, if there was one thing to say in terms of the calling out, is just realize that someone else on the other end if it is a human. And, they, and, and you know, we want to make sure that we are empathetic and that when you call BS, it's not about making you smarter. It's about making the room smarter and your group smarter and your family smarter. So do that in a way that makes everyone feel smarter and more empowered rather than feeling stupid. Well, important uh, work. Uh, thank you for doing it. Jevin West is associate professor in the Information School at University of Washington, uh, and he is director of the Center for an Informed Public there. Uh, he is co-author with his colleague Carl Bergstrom of Calling BS. That's a book on how to spot and refute misinformation. Um, and we'll point out again here at the end, he's a USU alum, so very proud uh, here at USU. Um, so, uh, Jevin West, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Tom, and thanks for all the work you're doing. When I was in Logan, I was a huge fan of, of all the public radio shows. And when I get there back in Logan, hopefully soon, um, I hope to uh, say hi to everyone. So thanks so much for all the – you grew the roots for what I'm doing right now in Logan, and, and what, what a great university there, and, and I miss all the faculty and students that I interacted with when I was there. Well, look forward to seeing you when you're back. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Jevin West, our guest uh, today on the program. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. 
Do you know about the mysterious food poisoning that gave Box Elder County's Malad River its name? Find out more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Throughout the 19th century, northern Utah's Malad River was the site of a mysterious illness affecting fur trappers. Rumors about the water spread through camps by way of river names, cautioning others who camped along the water's edge. French-speaking settlers and trappers named the waterway La Riviere à Maladie, or the Sickly River. Better known as the Malad River, the river's name warned other campers to avoid eating wildlife from its water. In 1824, fur trappers from the Hudson's Bay Company camped along northern Utah's Bigwood River. The men spent their first night eating hunted beaver. Just a few hours after eating dinner, members of the camp were suddenly wrenched with terrible stomach cramps. A witness described their misery graphically, recalling that the weak and speechless men suffered great pains that caused them to froth at the mouth. Unknowingly, the men had eaten beaver that, just hours earlier, lived in and ate from the Malad River. It wasn't long before the men pinpointed the cause of their agony to the beaver meat that they had all consumed for dinner, which they remarked was sweeter than usual. Theirs was not the first group of trappers to fall victim to the poisoned beavers of Malad River, and they were certainly not the last. Despite rumors about the poisonous beaver, hunger pressured the hunters into eating the tainted meat well into the 1860s. The exact cause of the fur trapper's illness remains unknown. Using first-hand reports of the symptoms, researchers generally agree that the beavers were likely eating poisonous plants or roots, such as hemlock or fool's parsley. These plants are plentiful in the area, and ingestion can cause symptoms mirroring those described by the original 1824 poisoning. But this was not known at the time, so the helpful naming of the Malad River served to warn settlers and travelers to avoid food from near the water source. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. The Moth is true stories told live, and this October you can experience it in person with all of us here at UPR. Join us at the Ellen Eccles Theater in Logan on October 21st for the Moth main stage. Just like the Moth Radio Hour, this live show will revolve around a theme, with storytellers exploring it often in unexpected ways. Since each story is true and every voice authentic, the show dances between documentary and theater. Tickets are available now. Find a link at upr.org, and we hope we'll see you there. Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org. Hey, it's Francis Lamb. This week, we asked some of our favorite food people who they're fans of, the people who inspired them to do what they do. We've got Melissa Clark, Patti Hinich, Shauna Siever, all talking about the culinary heroes that changed their lives and might just change yours. It's coming up on The Splendid Table from APM. Tune in Sunday at noon here on Utah Public Radio.